What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. been looking at this epic battle between God and Pharaoh and the false gods of Egypt, and so far we've seen four big blows that God lays upon Pharaoh, and especially certain false gods of Egypt. They've been more knockout blows to them, showing that they are powerless against the Lord. And we've seen this through the first four plagues that God has brought upon the Egyptians. That first plague being the Nile turned into blood. The second one, just all of Egypt, they're covered in frogs and the lice that came and then the swarms of insects uh, that were devouring, biting people. And the main purpose of these plagues was to help the Egyptians come to know who the true God is. Uh, and so, uh, and so with each plague where they're seeing that, they're discovering that, they're coming to this knowledge of the power of the true God versus the powerlessness of these false gods. And so each one of these specific plagues is directed towards different false gods of, of Egypt demonstrating that, hey, they don't have power to stop the true God from what he's doing. But it was, um, also something that we saw was the response that Pharaoh has. After each plague, you know, we're seeing a continual uh, response of just hardness. Uh, after each one of the first four plagues, he chooses himself to to harden his heart, even though all these horrible things are happening, even though that sometimes he said, oh, please, entreat the Lord on my behalf, and I'll let the people go. And then when the plague's gone, oh, nope, I'm going to harden my heart again. I'm not going to obey the Lord. And so we've just seen this happening all the time, despite what has happened, despite that every time something that God says something will come, it does, despite the fact that his own magicians have said, hey, this is the finger of God. This is from the Lord, uh, despite the fact that he recognizes where the plagues are coming from. That's why he comes to Moses and says, you know, pray for it to stop. He knows where it's coming from. He even knows how to stop it. All I got to do is be obedient. All I got to do is do what this God says, let his people go. But in the midst of it all, he still chooses to harden his heart. And so because of that, we see a pattern. He hardens, God sends plagues. And so we ended with him hardening and a plague coming, and he hardens himself again. And so now as we start chapter 9, we'll see more plagues to this hard-hearted Pharaoh and the consequences that come. And so chapter 9, starting in verse 1, says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and tell him, thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will be on your cattle in the field, on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the oxen, and on the sheep, a very severe pestilence. And the Lord will make a difference between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. So nothing shall die of all that belongs to the children of Israel. 
Then the Lord appointed a set time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. So the Lord did this thing on the next day, and all the livestock of Egypt died. But of the livestock of the children of Israel, not one died. Then Pharaoh sent, and indeed not even one of the livestock of the Israelites was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh became hard, and he did not let the people go. So once again, we see this pattern that God is doing. He gives Moses a message for Pharaoh and a warning. And so Moses comes with the message, and the message has been pretty much the same. Let my people go, that they can go and serve me. But the warning each time has been different. If you don't let the people go, this time we're told, Behold, the hand of the Lord will be on your cattle in the field on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the oxen, and on the sheep, a very severe pestilence. So if you don't let my people go, the next plague that's going to come is this severe pestilence on your livestock. Now this word translated pestilence means a plague or disease that brings death. And so God's saying, hey, you don't listen to me this time. You don't obey me this time. I'm bringing a plague that's going to disease your livestock and kill them. And he gets specific. Horses, donkeys, camels, oxen, and sheep. Now, this would have been a huge blow to the Egyptians. I mean, each one of these plagues has been something that's horrible, something that, you know, I mean, having frogs all over you have been miserable. But this one's now starting to impact, really, a lot of their wealth and their security. Um, you know, animals were used in many different ways. Uh, they were used in transportation, especially these ones. They were used in farming. They were used for work plowing, different things. Uh, they were used for milk, but they also used for meat, some of them. And so, you know, they were very valuable. And to lose them would to lose a lot of value, lose the ability to travel with goods, because some of the goods that Egypt would sell to other countries, they would be pulled by, you know, donkeys or horses behind carts. You know, and so to get all their goods elsewhere, they're not going to pull it themselves. They use these animals to do this, and so it would have really hurt them. Not only is the animal value, but what the animal is capable of doing for them is valuable, but it also is something that would have been a security issue. One of the reasons why Egypt had an army that was so you know much of a force in that day was not just because they had a large amount of soldiers, but the technology that they had over other places was the fact that they had chariots that were horse-drawn. And these chariots, if you go into battle and you got a horse-drawn chariot, and you're coming against someone who's just standing there with a sword, you're going to wipe that person out. And so they had lots of chariots, but those chariots do absolutely no good if all the horses are dead. Uh, and so there's now a vulnerability also from the fact that this would be a problem as well. And so losing these animals would be an issue. Now, just like with the last plague, God says, I'm going to protect the Israelites. I'm only killing the Egyptian livestock. But the Israel livestock, I'm going to protect them. They're not going to die. They're not going to receive this disease of pestilence. Verse 4 says, And the Lord will make a difference between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing shall die of all that belongs to the children of Israel. But also notice that God sets a specific time for this. He says, you know what? I'm going to do this tomorrow. Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. Once again, we see the mercy of God. God's saying, Pharaoh, I'm going to give you a day to choose. Here's the warning. You don't let my people go. This 
plague of pestilence is going to wipe out all the livestock of Egypt. But before I send this plague, I'm going to wait a day. I'm going to give you a day to make a choice. You can choose to obey me. You can choose to let the people go. You can make a choice that will keep this plague from destroying more of Egypt. It's a choice for you. But if you disobey, be warned that I'm going to bring this plague and the consequences are going to be the loss of your livestock. You know, I think this is something interesting that we see God doing. It started right in the Garden of Eden. God gives a choice to Adam and Eve. You can eat of all the trees of the garden, but there's one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and of evil, that you may not eat. So there is the choice that you have, but there's also a consequence. In the day that you eat it, you will surely die. So now you guys have a choice. You can choose to obey me and eat of all these other trees. It's just not eat of this one. Or you can choose to disobey me and eat of this tree, and the suffering of the consequence will happen. You will die because of it. We know that Adam and Eve made a poor choice. They choose to reject being obedient and choose to be disobedient, and the consequences come into their life. But you know what? This day that we live in, God gives everyone a choice. You can choose to accept Jesus Christ. You can choose what He's done for you on the cross. And if you do that, you will be forgiven. You will be saved. Or you can choose to reject Him. You can choose to reject the work that He did for you. And if you do that, you will be judged and sent to hell. And so there is the choice, but there's also the warning. And sadly, just like Adam and Eve chose to disobey and receive the consequences, many people today choose to reject Christ. And if they continue in that... When they die, they will also be judged and receive the consequences of hell. And so it shouldn't surprise us here as we see Pharaoh doing the exact same thing. God says, here's the warning. You can obey me and escape the consequences, or you can disobey me and receive the consequences. And Pharaoh, well, <laughs> he has a pattern of disobedience, and he's already you know, suffered a lot of consequences, but it seems like it hasn't been enough to change him yet. And so, God once again does what He says. Gives Pharaoh that day an act of mercy. Pharaoh decides, I don't really care. I'm just going to continue to be hard-hearted. I'm not going to obey God. God says, fine. Here you go. All your livestock are now dead. I sent the pestilence and wiped them out. Now, the killing of these livestock is once again specific, and it targets a God that the Egyptians worshipped. The Egyptians worshipped the goddess Hathor, who was the mother goddess. Uh, they believed that she protected their livestock. As you can see from this picture, she is pictured as a cow. Uh, and so cows, because of this, were worshipped. They couldn't be killed. Uh, but they believed that you know, Hathor had this power to you know, protect the livestock from disease, to protect the livestock from death. Uh, and there's actually an ancient record of a battle that the Egyptians lost because wisely, another group who didn't worship livestock, especially cows, they just put a bunch of cows in front of them and started marching. And so it took away all the arrows and everything because the Egyptians wouldn't shoot at them because they were afraid that if I shoot at them, I'll hit a cow. And these cows are sacred and we can't kill them. And they actually lost the battle because of what just took place. Uh, and so they have this belief, this worship. They think Hathor has all this power. But now that all these livestock are dying... Once again, it shows, no, the God that you worship is false and powerless against the true God. Now, before this plague, God told Pharaoh 
that all the Egyptian livestock would die. But he also said the Israelites' livestock wouldn't. So now that Pharaoh sees that God once again is faithful to his word, all his livestock are dead, he sends some people to Goshen, go find out if they have dead livestock or not. And so they go and they look and they come back, sorry Pharaoh, their livestock are still alive, just like God said, it's only our livestock that died. Now once again, Pharaoh has a choice to make. He can obey God, he can say, finally this is enough. Five plagues, I've had enough, all right, I get who the real God is, I get the power that I'm up against, I can't win this battle, I give up, I throw in the towel, I'm going to obey, I'm going to let the people go. But once again, we see that Pharaoh chooses to harden his heart and not obey God. So in spite of all that's happened, in spite of every single time that God said something would come, it did. Despite that his own magicians, the men that he should be listening to, are saying, you know, this is from God, beware. Despite the fact that he recognizes it, no matter what he's been told, no matter what he's been seen and experienced, it doesn't move him from hardening his heart. And this hard-heartedness is going to bring upon him and the Egyptians another plague. Verse 8. So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take for yourself handfuls of ash from the furnace and let Moses scatter it towards the heavens in the sight of Pharaoh and it will become fine dust in all the land of Egypt and it will cause boils that break out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. Then they took ashes from the furnace and stood before Pharaoh and Moses scattered them towards heaven and they caused boils that break out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians and on all the Egyptians. Here is a second time that God does not give a warning, does not give a message, does not give anything. He just sends a plague. So we saw that at the third plague, and now we're seeing this at the sixth plague as well, that, you know, the mercy of God in giving Pharaoh an opportunity to hear what's coming and to change. He just says, you know what? You're going to keep hardening your heart. Here comes another plague back to back. And this one, God tells Moses, I want you to take a handful of ashes from the furnace and I want you in the sight of Pharaoh just to throw them up to heaven. And I'm going to take those ashes and I'm going to turn them into a dust. And that dust is going to go throughout Egypt. And when it touches people, they're going to get these horrible boils all over their bodies, not only on people, but also on animals. The idea behind this Hebrew word translated boils can also be even translated to burn. Uh, It has the idea of the swelling, painful skin inflammation. Now, boils obviously would have been a horrible thing to have. Of all the things that have come so far, this is probably going to be the most miserable to them personally. I mean, obviously, it would become comfortable to have frogs and lice and other things coming, but, you know, your body covered in boils probably, you know, was the most physically miserable plague so far. There's going to be even a worse physical plague coming. But up to this point, this is most likely the the most, you know, uncomfortable they would have been personally. Uh, But what I find interesting is boils were not uncommon back then. And history reveals that what they would do when they would get boils is that they would come to the magicians, And the magicians were meant to cry out to a particular god that the Egyptians worshipped, the god Imhotep. He was the god of medicine. He was thought to be able to cure any ailment or disease. And so the magicians would not only pray to this god, 
but then they would make some potion, believing that this God was blessing that and enabling that to heal whatever disease, especially these boils. And I find this very interesting because now we see that for the first time, we're specifically told the magicians are affected by this plague. Now, they obviously have been affected because we've been told all the Egyptians are affected, but they we're told specifically now there's a mention of them. And I think the reason why there's a specific mention of them is because of this. People were used to saying, well, I got boils. I'm going to go to the magicians and they're going to pray to this God and he's going to get, they're going to give me a potion and we're going to be good. And so I'm sure once people get boils, they're like, all right, let's go to the magicians. And what do they see? The magicians are coupled in boils. It shows them, okay, you're the guys who are supposed to be able to have this inroad to this God here and these potions. And if you can't get rid of your own boils, how are you ever going to help me get rid of my boils? And it just not only shows that these false gods are powerless, but it's reminding them these magicians are powerless. And that power has already been seen to be diminished because they thought they were so great when those staffs turned into these creatures and when they turned water into blood and then they created frogs. Hey, look at our demonic power. Look what we can do. And then lice came. Oh, we can't do that. All the rest of the plagues, they haven't been able to match. And now they are suffering from boils and they don't have any power to stop it. They can't get away from it. They can't, you know, heal themselves in this God that they worship can't cure them. And so this would have been another just blow, not only to this false god of Egypt, but also just to the ones that people came to, these magicians who they thought were the holy men who knew all this stuff, but yet they're incapable as well. So now all the Egyptians are covered in boils. This plague's hit them hard. Probably the most miserable they've been. And it's at this point in time that we typically see Pharaoh chooses to harden his heart. But notice in verse 12, we're told something a little bit different. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not heed them just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So here's the first time that we see the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart. Now, if you remember back in chapter 3, chapter 4, God told Moses, I'm going to do this. And I said, when we get to the point where God actually does it, we'll address it. But until then, we'll wait. Well, now we got to the point where God has actually done this. So I want to address this issue of God hardening the heart of Pharaoh. But before we look into the significance of what that means, let's not forget here, there's been five plagues. And with each plague, Pharaoh has chosen to harden his own heart. He's made that choice after every opportunity. Really big opportunities. He understands what he's up against. And even sometimes he says, all right, I give up. I'm going to let them go. And when the plague goes, he turns around and hardens his heart again. So five times he has chosen to harden his heart. And it's only now after the sixth plague that we read that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Now, in order to understand what this means, in order to understand you know, what God's doing, we need to understand there's actually two different Hebrew words here translated harden. The one that we see about Pharaoh these first five times in the first five plagues is a different Hebrew word with a different meaning than the one that we see here translated harden that speaks of God. So the first five times that Pharaoh hardens his own heart, we have the same Hebrew word over and over again, the word kabod, which means to harden, to stiffen, to make heavy and insensible. So after each of the first five plagues, 
The Hebrew word kabod is used to speak of Pharaoh choosing to harden, to stiffen his heart. But here in chapter 9, verse 12, where we're told the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, we have a different Hebrew word with a different translation, different meaning. The Hebrew word here is kazak, which means to solidify or strengthen. So really, a more accurate translation would be that the Lord solidified and strengthened Pharaoh's heart. Now, the difference between the meaning of these two words is really the the key to understanding what this means. What did God do as he hardened Pharaoh's heart? You see, in English, we read harden his heart, and we think, okay, well, Pharaoh is choosing to take his soft heart, and he's choosing to make it hard. And that would fit in line with the Hebrew word that's used because kabod means to harden or stiffen. So that's exactly what Pharaoh did. He took a soft heart and he chose to make it hard. But then we read in English almost the same exact statement, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so we assume that, okay, well, God took a soft-hearted Pharaoh and he hardened him. That he kind of forced Pharaoh to be hard when Pharaoh was actually soft, because when we think of that term, that's what we think. So right away, we're we're thinking God forced Pharaoh's heart to do something it didn't want to do. And that thought process has caused many people to have a huge problem with this statement, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And if that was what this meant, I could understand why people would have that issue. But they've concluded that because they've just taken the English and not understanding what the actual Hebrew meant. And so the difference between these words is very important. One speaking of hardening, another speaking of solidifying or strengthening. So God did not take a soft-hearted Pharaoh and make him hard-hearted. He just solidified or strengthened the hard heart that Pharaoh already chose to have. You see, Pharaoh hardened his heart five times. And God says, okay, you want to make that choice? I'm just going to solidify that choice. I'm going to strengthen that choice. I'm not changing your choice. I'm not making you choose something different. I'm just solidifying what you've already chosen to do over and over and over again. So he didn't do it against Pharaoh's will. He didn't say, Pharaoh wasn't like, all right, Lord, I want to do what's right. I want to do what's good. I want to obey you. I want to let your people go. And so God says, nope, you have a soft heart. You want to do what I want, but I'm not going to let you. I'm going to harden your heart and make you do this. God didn't do that. He is just solidifying what Pharaoh chose to do. Now, this concept of God really kind of solidifying, strengthening, really giving someone over to their choices, giving someone over to their sin, is something that we see throughout Scripture, but probably the one that's most clear is in Romans chapter 1. And through chapter 1, you see different things. We see why people are guilty before God. He says that God has revealed himself through his creation. So anybody who rejects God, that they're without excuse because he's revealed himself so clearly with all that he's created. And then it goes on to say that they worship what they worship, what they do in their rejection of God. But then we're told something very interesting. What God does to these sinful people, these sinful people who have just rejected the clear reality of his creation, rejected him, we're told something that's so important, and it'll help us understand what God is doing to Pharaoh. Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 28 says this, For this reason God also gave them up to uncleanness, in the lust of their heart to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. 
For even their women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting. Notice that three times we see for this reason, the reason being the sinful behavior, the sinful choices that people made, that God gave them up to sin. That sin that they're choosing, that sin that they're desiring, that sin that they they longed for. Now notice the pattern. Someone rejects God, hardens their heart against them, and continually indulges in sinful behavior, and God says, all right, In response to that, I'm going to give you up to those things. So instead of holding you back, I'm just going to give you up to what you so desperately want. You're pursuing it. You've hardened your heart. You've hardened your heart. You've hardened your heart. I've given you all sorts of opportunity to repent and turn away, and you keep pursuing this. And so fine, I'm just going to give you up to these things that you continue to pursue. And that's what we see God doing with Pharaoh. Pharaoh has had plenty of chances. Five opportunities, five huge plagues, five warnings. Each time he has chosen to harden his own heart, and even multiple times where he hardens it, and then he says, all right, I'll let them go, and then he hardens it again. And so God's finally just saying, you know what? Fine, I'm just going to solidify that choice. I'm going to give you over to your hardness. I'm going to not try and stop it. I'm going to allow you to continue to pursue this hard-heartedness that you have. So the fact that God hardened Pharaoh's heart shouldn't be a problem. There's nothing wrong with God solidifying choices that we make. There's nothing wrong with God strengthening our own hard-heartedness. He didn't force Pharaoh to do something that Pharaoh didn't want to do. So I hope that helps with your understanding of this issue. But now let's look at what we see here. God solidifies, he strengthens this choice that Pharaoh has made. And so now, once again, Pharaoh's not willing to listen. He's not willing to heed the voice of God. He's not willing to obey him and let the people go. And so now, there's a consequence, as God keeps telling him. So now we're going to see the seventh plague. Verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning, stand before Pharaoh, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For at this time I will send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants, and on your people, that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Now if I stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. But instead, but indeed, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. As yet, you exalt yourself against my people, and that you will not let them go. Behold, tomorrow, about this time, I will cause very heavy rain, hail to rain down, such as not been in Egypt since its founding until now. Therefore, send now and gather your livestock and all that you have in the field, for the hail shall come down on every man and every animal which is found in the field and is not brought home, and they shall die. He who feared the words of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his livestock flee to the houses, but he did not regard the word of the Lord, left his servants and his livestock in the field. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards heaven that there may be hail in the land of Egypt on man, on beast, and on herb of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched out his rod towards heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire darted to the ground and the Lord rained hail in the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire mingled with the hail, so very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both man and beast. And the hail struck every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. So once again, we see God coming, sending Moses to Pharaoh with a message. Same message, hasn't changed. Let my people go that they may serve me. But each time the warning has been new. But before God gets into the new warning, notice he reminds Pharaoh of the purpose of these plagues. I'm going to send another plague on you, but I want you to be reminded of why I'm doing this. That you and your people may know that there is none like me in all the earth. This is something that God has revealed before, something he's revealed to Moses. But he wants Pharaoh to be real clear. I send these plagues so that you and all the Egyptians can know something very important. There's none like me anywhere. Your gods that you worship, they're powerless against me. Why? Because there's none like me in all the earth. That's the purpose that we've seen shared a few times. But God goes on to share something else about these plagues. Notice what he says in verse 15. Now, if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you'd been cut off from all the earth. But indeed, for this purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. In the fifth plague, God brings this pestilence, this disease that kills, and he sends it to the livestock of the Egyptians and all their livestock dies. In the sixth plague, he strikes them with boils. And now he says, if I wanted to, I could have struck you guys with pestilence. And guess what would have happened? You'd all be dead. I would have struck you from the face of the earth. I could have killed you. I have the power to do it. I'm choosing to let you live. I could have wiped you out just like I wiped out your cattle, but I have a plan. I'm keeping you alive for a reason. And notice the reason in verse 16. But indeed, for this purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. The reason I haven't wiped you guys out is because I am showing my power in you. I'm declaring myself, not just to Egypt, but to the whole earth. Now, this is something that's very interesting because as we move from Exodus, you start reading through the rest of the Old Testament, you will see that the word of what happened here in Egypt, these 10 plagues, it started to spread. Everywhere the Egypt goes, people are knowing this is the group that come from the God who put those ten plagues against Egypt. Everyone heard about it. The news spread of this powerful God who is able to bring this great amount of plagues. And so what God says is the reason, ultimately, it wasn't just for Egypt. I don't want just you, Pharaoh, to know. I don't just want the Egyptians to know. This power that I'm displaying is on display for the world. I want the world to know who I am and what I'm capable of doing. And it's something that actually comes to pass. But after sharing this, God says to Pharaoh, As yet, you exalt yourself against my people, and that you will not let them 
go. I like how God describes that. Really, Pharaoh, you're just exalting yourself against my people like you have some power here. (laughs) Don't you realize yet who has the power? Don't you realize yet who you're up against? Not yet, huh? If Pharaoh thinks he's accomplishing anything and his resistance against God, he's wrong. His stubbornness is doing only one thing. It's just bringing the glory of God to a bigger place. It's helping God to be seen in a more powerful way. When you look back on it all, you could have stopped it at plague number one. You're going to let it go to plague number 10. And all those different things, it just showed my power even more. It just showed all these false gods that you worship are powerless. It's what I'm able to do. Now that God has shared these insights with Pharaoh about why he's sending the plagues, he gives him a warning. Here's the next one, Pharaoh. If you don't let my people go, I'm going to rain down hail from heaven such as not been in Egypt since its founding until now. Now, I'm sure most of us have at least seen hail, have been part of some kind of hail storm. Here in Houston, we don't get really big chunks of hail. But compared to what's going to happen here, no matter where you've lived, you haven't seen this. Because this was unnatural hail. It's huge hail, as we'll notice now in a few seconds. But uh, not only is the hail big, but we're told that it's mingled with fire. Ice and fire, yeah, they don't go hand in hand. So this is something supernatural. This is something that God is bringing. This isn't going to be ordinary hail coming down from heaven. This is going to be this supernatural move that I bring where it's going to be hail that's on fire. So these huge chunks of ice that will obviously do great damage to what it hits, but it's also going to be on fire so they can burn up what it hits as well. The movie The Prince of Egypt, I thought, did a pretty good job of kind of showing this. So here's a clip of what this might have been like. Now, we're also told that this hail was so heavy that it broke every tree that was in the field. I want you to think about that. I mean, there obviously are little trees, but big trees. I mean, a big tree, it would take a pretty big chunk of ice to just break the limbs, you know, break the trunk. Uh, And so this shows us that, man, I mean, you get balls of hail that are like, you know, uh, a golf ball. That'll put good dents in your car. But ones that are going to take out trees... Those are going to be like bowling ball size. So, you know, imagine these huge chunks of ice falling down on fire. So not only does it destroy what it hits, but then it just consumes it in fire. And something I find interesting is that God gives a warning to Pharaoh about the effect that this plague is going to bring. He hasn't done this yet. Notice what he does in verse 19. Therefore, send now and gather your livestock and all that you have in the field, for the hail shall come down on every man and every animal which is found in the field and is not brought home, and they shall die. God tells Pharaoh, here's the next plague coming, Pharaoh, but let me just give you a warning. It's going to kill anything in the field. Any livestock you have in the field, they're going to be dead. Any servants you have in the field, they're going to be dead. So let me just give you a nice little helpful warning. Bring everybody inside. Take all your livestock, bring them inside. Take all your people, bring them inside. Because if you leave them in the field, then each one of them is going to be dead. 
Now, before we look at the mercy that God is showing here, you might have recognized, wait a second, it seems like there's a little bit of a contradiction. People will come to this as one of the things that they try to come against the Bible and say, oh, see, here the Bible's full of contradictions and we can't trust it. You see, in the fifth plague, God sends pestilence and we're told all the Egyptian livestock died, right? Now we come to the seventh plague and God says, get your livestock out of the field. Well, wait a second, are they dead, like the fifth plague said? Are they alive, like the seventh plague said? It seems to be a contradiction. But it's not really. Here's a few solutions to show that this is not a contradiction at all. Here are three possible solutions to what could happen. First, the Bible does not reveal how much time passed between the fifth plague and the seventh plague. But here's some things we do know. Guess whose livestock didn't die? All the Israelites, right? And what are they? A bunch of slaves. Okay, you're my slave. My livestock's dead. You have livestock. What am I probably going to do? I'm going to take yours. <laughs> I mean, I don't think you, they don't, you don't deserve them. You're, you're my property. Therefore, what you have is my property as well. So easily, the Egyptians could have replenished their livestock just by taking the livestock that belonged to the Israelites. So that'd be a very simple answer to why they now have livestock at the seventh plague when they died in the fifth plague, because not all of them died. Only the ones of Egypt, the Egyptians died. Uh, and also, we're not told that any of the surrounding countries had their livestock dead. Egypt was wealthy. They could have gotten bots. You know, here, here's the surrounding places. We need livestock. Ours is dead. We'll purchase yours, and we'll replenish. So the most simple answer to this is they just replenished it either by taking or buying, or a combination of both, and that's why they now have livestock when the ones in the fifth plague were killed. The second possible solution is that all, not all the livestock were killed. Notice that God's actually quite specific in this plague. He lists the animals in the field versus animals that perhaps were in some kind of covering, but also he gives specific names, horses, donkeys, camels, oxen, and sheep. Now, one thing that seems to be glaringly missing, one that was very common at that time, were goats. Not on the list, uh, so it's very possible the goats weren't killed by this pestilence, or that, you know, speaking of the reality that not all of the livestock actually died in this. So that's another possibility that, you know, the horses are dead, the donkeys are dead, the camels are dead, the sheep are dead. And so in the seventh plague, when he's saying remove livestock, he's speaking of goats or other ones that didn't die in the fifth plague. That's another possible solution uh, to this. And the third possible solution is the fact that when the word all is used, it's not referring to every single animal. Oftentimes in Scripture, when all is used, it's speaking of the greater part of or all of a particular category, not necessarily all speaking of absolute. We saw this earlier in Exodus. Remember after the first plague? We're told that all the Egyptians dug around to find water to drink. Now, are we to believe that the baby infants dug? That the people who have disabilities dug? That the elderly who can't get out of bed dug? No. He's speaking of all in the sense of the majority of people got out there and did this. We don't think every single Egyptian was out there digging. In the same way, he might not be speaking of all in the sense that it's here. So that's another possible solution. But... You know, there's more than this, but what I want you to recognize is if you come to something that seems like an apparent contradiction, 
Recognize there's answers to it. Don't get all, oh my goodness, how can I trust the Bible anymore? You know, come investigate. You'll find that, you know, what you maybe think is a contradiction has plenty of reasonable solutions. And these are just three that could help you realize, no, there's not an issue here at all. But the fact that God warns Pharaoh and the Egyptians in this way, it reveals the mercy of God. God didn't have to do this. God could have just said, here it is. Now all your you know, animals and your people in the field, they're dead. But God gives them a chance, a chance to remove their animals and a chance to remove the servants from the field and put them in a place where they'll be protected from this plague. And the thing that I really find interesting here is it's really the first time that God has done this for the Egyptians. To Pharaoh, over and over, he's had an opportunity to either listen and obey and not receive the consequences of the plague or not. It's always been his choice, and his choice has had the ramifications that all the Egyptians have to suffer. But now, God is saying, every Egyptian, you can choose right now. You can choose that what I'm saying is true, that this hail plague is coming, and you can remove your animals and your servants, and they can survive this. Or you can ignore it. You can think that what I'm saying is not going to happen. You can leave your animals, you can leave your servants out in the field and suffer the consequences of that. So now not only Pharaoh, but all of Egypt has this opportunity to choose to obey what God tells them and not suffer consequences for it. But notice what we're told in verses 20 and 21. He who feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his livestock flee to the houses, but... He who did not regard the word of the Lord left his servants and livestock in the field. This is kind of amazing to me. I mean, if this was the first time that God has done anything, this is the very first plague, and all of them are like, who is this God? Why should we listen to him? I could totally understand why all of Egypt would be like, yeah, you're going to bring hail with fire on us. Yeah, that's never going to happen. I could totally see why they would just disregard that, leave their servants and their animals in the field, not believing that God's going to do this. But now they've had five plagues. God has told them, I'm going to turn the Nile to blood. He does it. I'm going to send frogs. He does it. I'm bringing lice. He does it. I'm bringing insects. He does it. I'm going to kill your livestock. He does it. They've seen that God has amazing power. So there shouldn't be this like, can he do this? They've already seen the power of God. Will he do this? He's already been faithful each time. And there are some who fear the word of the Lord, who believe he's going to do this, and they act upon it. They remove their servants. They remove their livestock. And they're blessed. Why? Because they don't die. But they're the foolish ones. Ah, God's not going to do this. Servants, stay out there. Livestock, I don't care. There's not any hail coming down. And all of them die. And it just shows the foolishness when we ignore the warnings, when we're not willing to listen to what God says. But you know, as I thought of how stupid these guys are, God reminded me, you know what? We're a lot like this. God warns us of what particular sins will do to us, and we often ignore the warning. And then we see and we experience the consequences firsthand. Oh, God, you'll never do that. Then we go and we indulge in the sin, and oh, whoa, I do have those consequences. I do suffer them. But then another warning. And if you do this, 
there's this consequence. Ah, no, I'll just engage in it. You know, surely this will, I'll be the exception to the rule. Nothing will happen to me. And once again, we suffer consequences. And then another, you know, opportunity to sin. And, and we know that the Bible says there's this consequence. Oh, no, that's not going to be for me. And there's this pattern of foolishness. If we have enough information to know every time I choose to sin, consequences come. Why am I dumb enough to think that this time it's going to be any different? That this time somehow I'm not going to suffer the consequences that God says I will. And so as I look at Pharaoh and think in the, Egyptians, you guys are so dumb. we got to look at our own selves and say, man, we are so dumb oftentimes when it comes to sin and our continual pursuit of things with a belief that is completely untrue, a belief that the enemy wants us to believe that you will not suffer consequences. That's how we started in the garden with Eve. You won't surely die. You're not going to suffer any consequences. Go eat of that. Don't worry about what God says. Disobey. Nothing's going to happen to you. The same lie he uses with us. And unfortunately, we often fall for it and then have to suffer the consequences that it brings. But the truth is God's word stands and we will experience the consequences of our sin. And in his mercy, God continues to warn that's what I love about him. I mean, he could just stop warning Pharaoh, stop warning the Egyptians. You guys have had plenty of warnings. Plagues are just going to start raining down from heaven. But he continues to warn them. He continues to give them opportunity to obey and repent and believe and just escape the consequences. You know, through Jesus' death on the cross, we're going to escape the ultimate consequence, which is hell. And that's a wonderful blessing. But let's not miss the reality that we do not escape the natural consequence of sin in this life. You go kill someone, God will forgive you. It's not going to be something that sends you to hell, but you're going to prison. Your life is going to be very different. There are severe consequences here in this life. You know, you cheat on your taxes, will you be forgiven? Sure, but you're going to be, the IRS is going to get that money back. You're going to have problems. You know, you steal, you do whatever. You know, we think, well, that there's, there's no uh, ramifications to that. And sin, there's consequences to being in certain places like cockroaches in here. <laughs> it's like a plague coming right now. But, you know, this is something that we need to recognize, that we will suffer consequences. And we need to be aware of that. Now, with every plague, we've noted... God's using this plague for a purpose. He wants to show, hey, there's false gods here that you worship that are powerless against me, and this plague is no different. This was an attack on the Egyptian sky goddess Newt. As you can see from this picture, Newt has all these stars over her, and she's arched over the entire Egyptians to protect them from the sky. And the Egyptians believe that Newt had complete control over the sky. But... She's powerless from this hail fire. Come on, Newt, where are you? You're supposed to be you know, hovering over us, protecting us from what could come, and yet God is raining down hail fire on us to show that Newt is powerless against him. So now let's see how Pharaoh responds to this next plague, verse 27. And Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous, and my people and I are wicked. 
Entreat the Lord that there may be no more mighty thundering and hail, for it is enough. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. So Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you will not yet fear the Lord God. Now the flask and the barley were struck, for the barley was in the head of the flask, was in bud. But the wheat and the spelt were not struck, for they are late crops. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and spread out his hands to the Lord. Then the thunder and hail ceased, and the rain was not poured out on the earth. And when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet more, and he hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hard. Neither would he let the children of Israel go as the Lord had spoken by Moses. I mean, this would have been pretty uh, frightening. I mean, all these plagues, I'm sure, were just insane. But, you know, they would at least been, you know, known frogs, not that that quantity. Lice, they would have experienced it, not that quantity. You know, all these things, even boils, I mean, this was like something they experienced. But now there's something they've never experienced before. Hail mixed with fire, just pouring down huge chunks of hail, just wiping things out. And now all of a sudden, notice, Pharaoh calls Moses. He notes who has the power and that he's going to have to do something for this to stop. And he says something to Moses, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous and my people and I are wicked. Now this sounds like Pharaoh has finally come to the place that we've wanted to see him come for these six plagues. Now the seventh one has finally brought him to repentance. He finally recognizes, I'm not only a sinful person, these Egyptians are sinful people, God is righteous, and we want to do what he tells us to do. I'm going to let your people go. I'm going to obey God. I finally come to this place where I recognize my sin and want to repent before this all-powerful deity that is proven to be much stronger and more powerful than the gods that I serve. Sounds great. But notice when Moses hears this, he says, yeah, I'll go out and I'll pray for you. I'll entreat the Lord on your behalf. But notice what he says in verse 30. But as for you and your servants, I know that you will not yet fear the Lord God. Now, we're not told why Moses concludes this. He could have just seen something or just, I'm wising up to you, Pharaoh. I've heard this enough times to know that you're not a man of your word, that you just say things to get the plagues to stop, but that you're not truly meaning this. Or Moses could have been understanding what God already told him. You see, back in chapter 4, God made it clear to Moses, Pharaoh, the only way he's going to let the Israelites go is when I kill his firstborn. Moses knows that hasn't happened yet. So he might just be concluding, you sound good. You're saying the right things, but God's already given me a warning. You're not going to do this until something comes even greater than what has already come. And so I know that you and your servants, you don't really fear God enough to actually mean this. You don't fear God enough to truly be repentant. You don't fear God enough to actually obey what he says. And we're going to see from Pharaoh's response that Moses was right. He wasn't willing to repent. I think this brings up an important aspect of repentance. There's a difference between being sorry and being repentant. Sorrow is just an emotion and a feeling. Repentance is to turn away from something. 
Pharaoh here is sorry. He's sorry he's suffering through plagues. He's sorry he's miserable. He's sorry that hail fire is destroying his, you know, empire. He's not repentant. He hasn't come to a place where he's truly willing to turn from his disobedience, to turn and let the Israelites go, recognizing who God is and coming to believe and repent before him. So he's sorry. Yeah, he has an emotion. I wish this wasn't happening. He's not repentant. And I think too often that's the way that we are when we are suffering consequences, because that's what this is all about. I'm sorry I have to deal with these consequences, but I am not ready to repent. And I think, you know, I know in my life many times I was sorry that I was caught. I was sorry that I was in suffering through the consequence of my sin, but I wasn't repentant. I didn't actually want to change my behavior. I just wish I didn't have to suffer the consequences of my behavior. I didn't want to change it. I just wish my parents didn't find out about it and punish me. And there's a big difference between sorrow, the feeling of being feeling bad because now I gotta, you know, be in trouble and I gotta suffer this and that, versus no, what I did was wrong. I recognize that. I want to turn from that. I want to stop doing that. That is true repentance. And unfortunately, oftentimes, we're just like Pharaoh. We're just sorry that we're caught. Sorry that we're suffering consequences, but we haven't got to the place where God wants us to be and that is the place of repentance. Well, Pharaoh, the consequences leave. The plague's gone. And notice what he chooses to do. He hardens his heart again. And I think even interesting, Moses is still willing to pray. Moses knows you're not going to let the Israel go. You're not really going to do what you say, but I'll still pray on your behalf. You've asked me to. You're asking it with the, you know, uh, if you pray, then I'll do this. And Moses, you're not going to do this, but you know what? I'm still going to pray. Because ultimately, Moses doesn't want Pharaoh to have any excuse for why he chooses to reject God. But also, Moses realizes as well, as God has said, all this is doing is just giving God more opportunity to make himself known, to show his power throughout all the earth. It's most like, fine, <laughs> you want another round of this stuff, Pharaoh? I'll, I'll stop this one, but don't be foolish enough to think that another plague's not coming. So Pharaoh sees everything stopped, and now we're told he makes a really poor choice once again, and he hardens his heart. But you know what? We're also told something else happens. Notice that he's not the only one. First time we're told of other people, his servants harden their heart as well. Now, obviously, they made a, a choice. But I think there's something that we need to note here. The choices of Pharaoh over and over again to harden his heart to what God is doing has been an example that is very negative to his servants. And now they finally got to the place where they as well are hardening their heart to God. And this is really one of those consequences to our choices that maybe, maybe we don't often recognize. Oh yeah, if I do this sin, I know of this natural consequence, or I know that if I steal, there's going to be this, or I do this. But sometimes, especially as parents, you don't recognize how severe this one is. As I harden my heart to sin and willfully choose to continue in it, the consequence is that people close to me see that example and are emboldened to do the same. 
And that's a scary thought as a parent. I'm, I'm encouraging my kids to harden their heart to God. I'm encouraging my kids to you know, willfully engage in sinful behavior through my example to them. And we see this with Pharaoh. We see this with people in our life. And we need to recognize this is one of the worst consequences of all. Pharaoh's choices, as you can clearly see, do not just impact him. Everybody in Egypt is suffering because of him. But now we see that others in Egypt who you would think would be like, Pharaoh, you're an idiot. Stop saying no and let these people go. No, they've come to the place where they are hard-hearted as well. Yes, Pharaoh, let's just keep denying God. Let's keep fighting against him. We're with you. Sadly, we can be that kind of example to others in a way that is not good. Ezekiel 18.30 gives us a great challenge. Repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Pharaoh is going to lose a lot before he comes to this place. And even when it looks like he comes to this place, he actually doesn't. He really never is going to. He's going to die. Never really getting to a place where he's willing to turn away. True repentance so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Well, sorry, this is going to be the ruin of Pharaoh. And hopefully a warning to us of how important it is to turn away. And as I said, yeah, our eternal destiny might not be at stake any longer now that we've accepted Christ, but our life here still is going to have some significant problems if we're not willing to soften our hearts and repent and turn away from sin, because there definitely are things that bring ruin. Hey, you can choose to divorce your wife. You can choose to you know, commit adultery. You can choose to do certain things. But beware, there will be consequences to that in this life. And we need to recognize that that's coming if we make these choices. Well, before we open it up to thoughts on this chapter, before I forget, next week we will not be here. So if you come here, the doors will be closed. The rapture's coming, and <laughs> there's going to be actually a plague of uh, cockroaches here, so we're going to stay away. But uh, Morris and Ida are going to be here with us next week. Uh, it is uh, Valentine's night, but um, we're going to have a meal. So from 6 to 7 at our house, we're going to eat. It'll give us a little more time just to get to fellowship with them. Uh, and then afterwards, they're going to have time just to share with us what the Lord's been doing this last year, how we can pray, uh, just encourage us with you know, how God's working over in Africa. Uh, and so love for you to be able to come for six to seven meal. Uh, if you can't, then come at seven. We'll have some worship, and Morris and I will be encouraging us. But just remember, it will not be here. I'll announce it again on Sunday uh, so that we'll have it fresh in our minds. But any thoughts on what we looked at tonight in this chapter?